our rifles were kind of in the center console with the barrel down because of all the evasive driving. My rifle and Agent M's rifle basically did the exact same thing. They got flung to the other side of the passenger cabin. I glanced at it as I was stopping and, and just immediately went, that, that gun is useless. I can't, I can't get to it fast enough. So I, I drew my pistol and as I leaned out, he looked at his and did the exact same thing. He, he drew his pistol and as he drew, that's when he started taking rounds. Listen up, gang. If you've not heard of Big Tech's ordinance on the internet, you've got to check it out. Ike and his team are wildly popular in the shooting and self-defense community because they are committed to providing the greatest selection of top-shelf gear at a fair price, supported by knowledgeable staff and undisputedly the best customer service in the industry. Please thank them for their support of this active self-protection podcast by considering them for any of your gear needs and let them prove to you why they have an almost fanatical fan base of their own. Please visit BigTextOrdinance.com, BigTextOrdinance.com, and let them know the Ask Podcast sent you. All right, gang, just a heads up, this is a two-part episode, so if you don't like waiting for the end of the story, turn this off, wait till next Friday, and listen to both of them at the same time. If you hate two-part episodes, leave me a comment. Let me know. I need to know what you guys want to hear. Uh, either way, this is a fascinating episode, a fascinating story from a good friend of mine. Hope you enjoy it. Alrighty, gang. Welcome back to the Active Self-Protection Podcast. I am once again your host, Mike Williver, and I remain your favorite former Fed with us today, a good friend of mine. Uh, his name is Jeff. He is a special agent with a federal agency that shall remain unnamed. It has three letters. Maybe that'll help. Um his opinions here today are his only and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of his parent agency. Uh, he had to go through all sorts of legal wrangling up front to, uh, to get on the show, but they, uh, they signed off on it. So here he is. Jeff, how are you, sir? I'm doing good, Mike. How are you? Man, it's so good to have you. Um, Jeff was on the show previously, a few months back. He is with a, a tactical team with a federal agency, and he came on a while back and shared some insights about uh, SWAT-type stuff, um, special response-type stuff, and the, that role in the training in the federal government. It's very similar to like a police or, or a sheriff's department, but um, just a different different vibe and different different mission. So before we get started talking about the incident, which is a doozy, ladies and gentlemen, um, talk to us about what you did prior to being in federal law enforcement. Sure. Um, I enlisted in the Air Force uh, when I was 18 years old, I left a couple weeks after high school and um, just kind of followed the footsteps of my uh, my my father and his father, my aunts, uncles, pretty much everybody uh, on my dad's side was in the military. Um, initially, I loaded bombs and fixed weapon systems on the, uh, the A-10, which is a phenomenal aircraft. My favorite military plane, by the way. <laughs> Yours and, and many Marines and many Army. Uh, soldiers. It's hate with wings. In, indeed, sir. And um, so I did that for a few years and um, I had always wanted to get into law enforcement. I wanted to, uh, I guess, essentially I wanted to be a detective. And um, so I, I got an opportunity to, to join the Office of Special Investigations with the Air Force. And I became a special agent with OSI in 2005. And I worked for the military, for the Air Force specifically, um, investigating um, crimes occurring, you know, involving military members, whether they were victims or suspects uh, or witnesses. And uh, I spent about four years doing that, um, doing some counterintelligence type stuff, deployed to Baghdad, 
Um, and then at the end, almost the end of 09, I, uh, I got out of the air force active duty and they were, uh, nice enough to, um, to hire me back as a civilian. And so I spent another year, uh, on a, on a, on a task force, uh, dealing with, uh, detainees down at Guantanamo, uh, Guantanamo Bay, mm-hmm. um, before I, I transferred over to the army. Um, and with the army, I did, uh, white collar contract fraud, bribery, uh, mostly acquisitions, major acquisitions, fraud for about four years. And then, uh, came over to my current agency, uh, in 2014 and, uh, I've been, been with them ever since. So air force OSI, for those who don't know, um, it, it's kind of like NCIS is to the Marine Corps and the Navy. I can't remember the army version of it. What's it called? Uh, Army Criminal Investigations Command. That's right. Okay. Um, it used to be CID, I think, as I recall. Anyway, with that said, uh, just as an aside for our listeners, how accurate are shows like NCIS as far as what a military investigator actually does? Because I have a feeling it's not even close. They're a hundred percent accurate, Mike. I, <laughs> I when I watch it, it's like uh, reliving a day in the life of a military criminal investigator. Uh-huh. Yeah. I bet. Um, no. Um, it, it, it's you know. I think that they they have to um, kind of glorify the profession a little bit, uh, make it sexier uh, than it is oftentimes. Um, but it, it's I'd say ten percent reality, um, and the ten percent that's the reality is when you see the characters sitting around a desk um, typing up things yeah. and, and running checks on things. That's that's more the reality of our profession than 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 the other stuff that you see. Yeah. I, I always joke my, my good buddy, Mike Haynes was my partner back in San Diego and he used to say he'd watch 24, the Jack Bauer show. And he's like, you know, they followed him 24 hours. I never once saw him use the bathroom, uh, type up a vehicle report or, uh, do his, do his hours in the database or anything like that. And yeah, it's absolutely true. If they made a, a TV show about my job with my former agency, um, no one would watch it because it would be, no, <laughs> be terribly no. boring anyway. So thanks for that. Um, so how long have you been with your current agency again since 2014? Yes. Yeah, I, I came on uh, September of 2014. I, I transferred over, um, had to go through the follow-on academy, um, and which was about 14 weeks, and just kind of learn the agency's uh, way of doing things, much, much the same at most federal law enforcement agencies. If you go uh, from one to the next, as long as you have the initial onboarding, uh, criminal investigator training program, you can, um, you can more or less transfer, you know, depending on the agency. Um, and, and oftentimes they have a follow on, sometimes they don't. In this case, they, they had a pretty lengthy follow on. Um, but it was refreshing. Uh, I, I, I learned a lot going into, uh, you know, the agency that I work for is one of the top five agencies that handles uh, violent crime in the United States mm-hmm. and coming from a military investigator uh, standpoint, I didn't have to deal with a lot of the same things in terms of threats that I dealt with um, or that I deal with on a daily basis here um, with this agency. And that's just a, a matter of you know, the, the, the suspect pool and the people we were interacting with are mostly military members or associated with the military. And, and so they, they tend to, um, you know, be 
uh, inherently less violent, inherently less criminal. Mm-hmm. More times than none, most of the criminal cases that I ran with um, OSI or Army CID, um, th- these guys were not criminal masterminds at all. They they just kind of made a stupid mistake, you know. Yeah, it, it's funny. I, I think a lot of people. Um assume that everyone in the military is a hero. Everyone in the military is a wonderful, upstanding human being. And unfortunately, just like the police department or a federal agency or anywhere else, you're drawing from the general population to get people. And sometimes bad guys and people with bad intent slip through. It happens. There's been all sorts of documented cases of, of documented gang members on, you know, running rackets on aircraft carriers, you name it. It, it happens. The military does their best to, to stamp it out. But they're, you know, military members are just people like everyone else, and they're therefore um, not immune to criminality. So prior to um, getting on the tactical team, can you just give us a general idea of what kinds of cases you investigated, what sort of crime? It might it might be a bit of a giveaway, but I think it's fine. Yeah, no, that's fine. I I, uh, I generally dealt with immigration and uh, enforcement of customs laws ah. and drug laws. Um, and so... Um, for the most part, I, when I first got on, I was out on, in a border office, um, out in the middle of nowhere on an, on a native American reservation. And, um, so most of what I did was narcotics related, mm-hmm. uh, on occasion, uh, depending on the, the situation I may deal with, uh, immigration issues. Um, but you know, you, you, you see a lot of stuff out there, um, between, you know, uh, murders, deaths, uh, you know, the, the, the full scale of, of violent crime that um, any local law enforcement agency deals with, um, we dealt with out there on, on the res. Yep. And it's, it's just simple statistics. You know, there, there's three agencies out there um, that are policing that area. Um, and um, so we, we were involved with quite a bit out there. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm familiar uh, the the southwest border, for those who've never been, um, is an interesting place. It's a dangerous place, and it has been that way since I started uh, with the feds in '96. And there is no shortage of um, work for federal law enforcement to, to do. So, with that said, at some point, um, you having the background you had with the military uh, must have looked at the the uh, sort of our version of SWAT or SRT or whatever it's called now and said, Hey, that looks like a lot of fun. Um, what made you decide to go move forward and do that? Cause it's not mandatory. Everyone there is a volunteer. So what made you decide to do that? And just talk to us in sort of in general about the training process and the selection process for that. Yeah. So I, it, it, when I was working for the DOD, um, there's, you know, amongst the, the military criminal investigative organizations, there's really not a, a, a tactical uh, team per se. Um, the Air Force had, uh, uh, I guess they called it an anti-terrorism team. Um, I initially was going to jump on that when I first came on board. Um, but the, the most of the, the kind of the tactical stuff you would do as a military investigator would be more when you deploy, um, specifically with like Air Force OSI or NCIS um, that are directly supporting counterterrorism and counterintelligence missions. But um, I didn't really have much, you know, tactical like experience other than deployments. Um, and even when I was deployed, I was more of, um, you know, I was handling, uh, human, uh, sources more than doing tactical stuff. So when I, when I was going through, um, the follow on Academy, they, um, the tactics and the use of force training was just, uh, um, it was mind blowing because, I never had to deal with that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. you know, being a military investigator. 
And I, I remember because my class was um was was mostly laterals. Uh, we had one brand new student, but the the rest of us came from other agencies. And some of these guys had come from other agencies like Secret Service or ATF, and they they had done a thing or two. Mm-hmm. And I remember just you know them complaining about like, oh man, if we had to do one more you know day of handcuffing, um, you know I, I'm I'm going to be upset or, or whatever. And here I am thinking, man, I, I, I'm really grateful for the handcuffing because I, in 10 years of my first 10 years of my career, I probably handcuffed like four people, five people, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, we just didn't have to do that, um, with military members. And, um, so the tactic side of it where, you know, basically you're practicing entering, entering a house or a structure safely, um, to secure it, um, so that you can, you know, start searching for whatever evidence uh, brought you to that residence or structure. And so the, the tactics instructors were from our tactical team. They were, they're actually from our training division at the time. And I was just impressed by these guys. Um, I, I couldn't get enough. I thought it was, um, just really interesting. Um, I've always been kind of, uh, kind of partial to, to, to like problem solving. Mm-hmm. And, which I think led me to investigations because that's what you're doing is you're solving problems um, as they come. And, and this was just a different type of, you know, solving problems, you know, with, um, with these guys. And so that's what led me to it. I, I, I came on, I got kind of got my feet wet and, um, you know, ran some cases for about a year out here in Arizona. And then uh, in December of uh, 2015, I decided to uh, try out for the team here locally. Um, and so I did. Yeah, it's funny. I just want to go back to something you said a moment ago. You said some of the uh, guys and gals in your academy class were kvetching about having to do handcuffing um, training more than once. It's funny, um, not for nothing, and you know this now, you've been on for a long time. Uh, the the one time in an interaction with a crook where it's almost certainly going to go bad, if it's going to go bad, is when those cuffs come off your belt and they hear that ratcheting of the cuffs and they go, oh, no, this is, you know, I'm going to jail. So handcuffing, believe it or not, dear listener, is extremely important. A good handcuffing technique can can, uh, can protect and save your life. Talk to us about the selection process. And, and just as an aside again, I think people think of SWAT guys in general as sort of meatheads like the jocks, you know, in high school. Uh, every, every SWAT SRT professional I've ever met has been wicked sharp, uh, because it, it takes a lot of planning and a lot of knowledge and a lot of intelligence to do this stuff, um, to do it well. So that's not true. So let's dispel that myth. Uh, and it's the process, uh, for every agency I've ever seen to get on a tactical team is extremely difficult. Uh, they don't, they don't let anybody in who's not qualified. Uh, it's a meritocracy. So just give us an overview of what the selection process is like. Once you put in and you make that request, uh, what happens? Yeah. So uh, just on a side note, going off of what you just said, Mike, um, we, we do get that reputation of being, uh, you know, meatheads and, um, part of that I think is most of the guys stay pr- pretty physically fit and, they um, have to. You, 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 you have to, we have a, a PT standard, um, that is, um, it's voluntary for us. I mean, if we want to be on the team, we have to stay in shape and for what we're doing on the, on, in terms of high risk operations, um, it's, it's paramount that, that we stay in shape. And so we do get that reputation, but what I'll say is, um, most of the guys on my team and most of the guys on teams, uh, with the agency across the nation, uh, those are, 
first of all, it's a part-time job. Most teams, uh, the majority of the team is part-time. They have now started to bring on full-time members as instructors and trainers to um, teach uh, tactics to their uh, local SAC office and teach firearms and defensive tactics and stuff like that. But, But by and large, most of the guys are collateral, which means that, you know, they're good case agents. And in order to manage their time and manage their priorities, they've got to be really sharp uh, in order to be able to participate in something that is a voluntary part-time gig. And then their, their first job, which is being a criminal investigator. Mm -hmm. So we, we do get that reputation, but I think if, if, if somebody were to really challenge it, and of course, oftentimes we don't, we just kind of go with the flow, but you'll find that most of these, most of these guys that are here on the team uh, across the nation are, are super sharp case agents first and they just have a passion for the tactical stuff. So when I when I tried out, every team is different. Um, they're, they're, for the most part, there is a physical fitness test, and then there's a firearms test. Um, our team um, does, you know, a couple things that are a little additions here and there um, in terms of like you know testing your 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 acumen on on room clearing, uh, which is something that is now taught at the basic level. Um, so we kind of test and see where you're at on that. Um, but I, I basically took a PT test, a firearms test. I did an interview and, um, made it on. And then I was sent to school for, for three weeks, um, to get trained, um, by some of the best in the business. Yeah, they really are. I know those guys, they're outstanding. And just physically, you know, uh, I, I will, I will admit, cause it, it, this was, you know, it's now coming up on uh, seven years. I think, um, the physical side was not as, as tough for me as it is now. It yeah. has gotten progressively more and more demanding and tough. And the guys that go through, I, cause I go out there and guest instruct and, and, and when those guys are doing PT, I'm doing PT with them and it is, it's grueling and it's, it's a grind. For three weeks, yeah, it's a young man's it's a young man's game for sure. It's a lot easier to do this stuff when you're uh, 28 than when you're 48. <laughs> it is, but believe it or not, we get we get guys that are uh, that come through for their first time at 50 years old, and wow. they are just rock stars. They're nice. in shape, uh, they know what they're doing. Obviously, you know, you get a guy at that age uh, that 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 wants to come on to the teams. Um, he's he's seen a thing or two, and and. Um, they don't make mistakes very easily too, you know, cause they've got a lot of life experience, a lot of the older guys. So, um, we get, we get all walks of life that come through. Uh, we get, uh, females as well. Uh, as long as they can, they can pass the standard, uh, they, they're welcome to join. And we've had several females, uh, go through over the years. Um, and I think there's still four, maybe four that are still out there and on the teams that maybe haven't promoted up or something like that. Maybe. Yeah. Another little glimpse into the world of, of law enforcement. Uh, any good agency needs um, there, there's roles to play. Um, there are certain guys who are cut out to be tactical guys. Folks, you've seen me on the main channel. I'm going to let you guess if I was ever on a tactical team or not. No, I wasn't. Um, and you need good rock star case agents. Those guys are important too. That run these big cases and have have the ability to keep just layers and layers of information on on bad actors and suspects and associates and addresses and wiretap information in their head and keep it all clear. That was never my, never my bailiwick whatsoever. Um, and you need, you need dudes, uh, guys and gals that are good at just sort of being around, helping out and doing like a general, general, uh, 
what am I looking for here? Like not pinch hitting. There's an analogy in here somewhere, Jeff. I promise you I'll get to it. Um, they can sort of do a little bit of everything. That's kind of where I fit in. Um, if you needed something done, you need surveillance done. I'm good at that. You need someone interviewed. I'm, I'm going to take care of that. Um, so any good agency needs all these sort of different sorts of people uh, to fulfill all the various missions. Because the agency that I worked for and you work for, the, the mission was so incredibly broad and vast. And there were so many moving parts and so many different kinds of crimes that we investigated. Um that it, it took a an immense body of knowledge and no one person could do could fulfill all those roles so uh there's a lot of diversity uh in in that way so let's talk briefly uh pre-incident how long had you been on a tactical team before the incident we're going to discuss before that happened uh believe ballpark i've been on for three 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 years just over three years something like that Okay, so I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of lay the groundwork here, and if at any point um, I cross a line or say something you feel like the agency wouldn't want said, just say the word. It's fine. We'll uh, we'll sure. we'll take another route. But um, the 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 kind of case that it was, I think it's important to talk about the the type of uh, criminal violation that was going on. It was um, it was human trafficking, human smuggling, generally speaking, and that's something that uh, my old agency investigated. And I can say without fear of contradiction that human traffickers, alien smugglers, whatever you want to call them, are among the worst human beings on the face of the planet. Um, they're absolutely ruthless. They don't care a whit about human life, about preserving life. And I don't care if it's an old man, an old lady, or a little kid. Uh, they're, they're The people they're trafficking, the people they're smuggling, and there is a difference. Uh, they're just cargo to them, and they don't care uh, at all about uh, their lives or their safety. And if you don't believe me, come out to the southwest border, um, anywhere between uh, Imperial Beach and uh, out to the Rio Grande Valley, and have a look, and you'll see it. So what, hap- what had happened was uh, you guys get called in to assist a case agent um, – with a with surveillance or takedown or whatever, talk to our listeners about how that works. You guys don't start cases as as um, as operators as as SRT guys, SWAT guys. You don't start a case and then see it through. Other groups of of investigators uh, in, initiate a case and they get to a point where they need help with either a dangerous warrant or a dangerous surveillance, and they call you guys in. So, kind of talk to our listeners about how that works. Yeah. So, um, we at least here in Arizona and it's pretty much going nationwide now for the agency, but, um, we are a customer service based, uh, outfit. Um, the team specifically. What's that? The team you mean the, the, the SRT. Yeah. The, yeah. the team is, the team is, is, is customer service based. I mean, uh, an investigator will go through, like you said, they'll go through their, their steps and they'll get to a, a natural point where there's some sort of enforcement that needs to be done. Or, uh, or an undercover operation um, where there's a high risk to an undercover agent. And they will uh, do a risk matrix. And then uh, based on that risk matrix, um, we will get uh, deployed to cover whatever that event is. Um, in this case, this was, uh, this was an arrest warrant for a guy who had kidnapped several um, non documented citizens, I believe is what we're calling them now. Sure. Um, and so that's what triggered us coming out is, is they, they 
and I, you know, I can talk more about how that, that got to where we were, but, um, they basically called us to serve the arrest warrant on this gentleman because of, uh, a lot of risk that his criminal history was showing them. And, uh, of course the crime itself that they, had, they, had, uh, indicted him on. So there's, there's no arrest warrant. There's no search warrant. There's no surveillance that has zero risk. But I guess what I want to get across to the listeners is there's there's varying degrees of risk. So if if an agent, a group uh, has has an enforcement action to be taken, they might submit this um, this threat assessment to the SRT to the SWAT team, and the SWAT team's like, no, we think you guys can handle this. No big deal. There's no there's no uh, reason to believe this is going to go sideways or is any more dangerous than anything else. And then there's times where uh, you know. For various reasons, it could be we. This guy has a violent criminal history. He's shot at the cops before, or he's he's uh, engaged in a dangerous pursuit, or we know he's armed, or whatever. And then it comes time to do that threat assessment. And I think it, I'm pretty sure it's the team leader that makes the decision, right? Whether or not it's it rises to that level. Is that correct? Well, ultimately, uh, the team leader reviews it, but ultimately, it always falls on the commander of the team, who is a, a supervisory special agent um, that that deploys the team. So, but yeah, it, generally speaking on, on the operational side, the team leader runs the team, but the, the commander is the ultimate responsible official. Okay. So sometimes we need SRT and, or we think we do other times we don't. In this case we did. Um, so as I recall, this was a, this was a smuggler, an alien, a human trafficker, alien smuggler, whatever you want to call it. Um, and he, he was mobile. So he was in a vehicle. Um, just kind of walk us through whatever you're allowed to tell us, walk us through that, that day and kind of what happened. Yeah. So the night, uh, I want to say it was the night before might've been, it might've been two days before. Um, I can't remember, but we, we got a request, uh, from the, you know, from the, the leadership of the team, um, for availability to, to assist on serving uh, an arrest warrant on this individual. And so uh, we were basically just given a, a time and a place to meet up in the morning. Um, in this case, it was uh, up in Phoenix. And basically, we, we that's where we'll muster, kind of get a full briefing. Um, in the midst of all that, you know, the team leader for the, for the operation, uh, we'll call him uh, R, uh, he was pushing out information um, via text uh, to us about, you know, who the, the individual was, like what led us here, what his past criminal history was, um, any information that he had garnered from uh, the case agent. Um, he was pushing out to us as, as you know, as, as soon as he got it. And then by the time we got up to uh, the briefing location, then we, of course, you know, um, did a kind of a briefing on, you know, what the, the schema maneuver would be for that day. So once you get the assignment um, and you guys are briefed, um, I, I've been through similar uh, kind of deals where, you know, you meet up to help somebody out with a case or with a takedown or whatever. You'll meet, you'll, you'll jack jaw a little bit, drink some coffee, and then given your kind of your marching orders um, and you'll suit up and go wherever it is you need to go. And there's a, there's a, a thousand different possibilities as far as what that might mean, depending on the type of case that it was. So in this case, you're told we're going to go, we're going to go affect uh, an arrest warrant on this guy. Um, it, at the time you were briefing up, did you have an idea where he was or we're going to look for him or what was the deal? So the night, the night before they, that they uh, the investigative team had surveillance on him 
at a local hotel in, uh, I believe it was Chandler, Arizona, which is in the Phoenix area. And the, the, the investigators kind of with this guy's MO, he would, he would basically smuggle, uh, uh, undocumented immigrants from the uh, native American reservation all the way to Phoenix. And then, uh, the, I think the information was he would put them, he would get like a hotel where let's say it was like a, you know, a Hilton was right next to a Marriott. Right. So he would, he would bring the, uh, the illegals to one hotel and then he would stay in another hotel. Mm. Uh, that's pretty common, I guess. Um, I, I haven't worked a whole lot of those types of investigations, but the transportation angle is, is generally what we, we focus on. And so our, you know, initial plan was we thought he was going to be at the hotel and we were just going to sit and lie and wait and wait for him to come out and then do an open air arrest takedown um, when he came out of the hotel. Can I can I assume the reason for that rather than knocking on the doors because it's just a lot safer to not, not to have to clear an unknown room rather than have him come out in the open where everybody can see him? Yeah, to to a certain respect, yeah. I, I mean, if there's certain things where if we were already in control of that area, like say, you know, an undercover operation in a hotel, connecting a hotel, that kind of thing or something like that. But in this case, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, with, with the risk that we had and, and not, not wanting to compromise the investigation, um, or put any more risk on anybody that he was with. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, de- it was just decided that the safest play was to take him outside, um, you know, in the parking lot of the hotel, there's a lot of reasons for that too, is, is you know, I mean, obviously I think it, it goes without saying not a whole lot of people will carry a long gun from their hotel. You know, maybe they do in, in a, in a case of some sort, if they, if they're going somewhere with it, but most people aren't just going to sling that thing up and, and carry it. So worst case scenario, uh, we would have to deal with somebody with a pistol at, mm-hmm. at worst. And that, that was kind of the idea, and that's generally the idea behind um, open-air takedowns, usually. All right, so where are you at this point, as, as we're now deploying out to our various assignments, uh, what is it you're assigned to do? Um, I assume you were assigned to go somewhere in or around the hotel? Well, yeah, initially that was the plan mm-hmm. um, until we got there, and he wasn't there at the hotel. And the investigators um, the night before had said when they had, driven by, I, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not sure why they didn't have 24 hour surveillance on them. Um, uh, but they didn't, um, somebody checked the, you know, probably, you know, 11 o'clock midnight or something like that. And he was there. And then by the morning he was gone. And so the investigators, um, were scrambling to try to find him because the team was already deployed. And, um, so they were trying to figure it out. And in the midst of our, our, our briefing, they, they figured it out by, uh, uh, that he had passed a, a particular checkpoint coming North mm-hmm. from the, from the, uh, Native American reservation, uh, which, you know, we have, we have ways that we figure that stuff out. You're, you're well aware of it, Mike, I'm not going to divulge that here, but no, please don't. Uh, essentially we figured out that he was Northbound and the investigators were trying to catch up and see if they could find him on the 10, uh, on the, uh, interstate 10 heading, uh, West towards Phoenix, in which case they did. Yeah. We call it West. It really is more like Northwest between Tucson yeah, and Phoenix, pretty, but, uh, yeah. it's a little confusing. So they catch up to this guy. He, what kind of vehicle is he driving? He was driving, 
uh, a Chevy uh, tra- Trailblazer, I believe it was. Okay, so a little SUV. Yeah. And so they, they follow him, and I assume this whole time you guys are getting updates from your staging location, and the, the idea is they're going to try to follow into a spot where they can vector you guys in to, to take the vehicle down to a traffic stop and affect the arrest. Correct, yeah. So we, 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 ha- we were a little shy on manpower, which was, um, you know, I can, uh, we'll talk later about, you know, some of the things that we learned from this and, and, and how that changed our SOPs and our TTPs as far as the tag team goes, but we were, we were short on manpower that day. Um, the investigators were trying to catch up to him. Um, and so the plan kind of evolved, um, in the middle of the briefing and they, you know, the investigators asked if, if, uh, we could get out on the road and, and assist them, which is not something that we normally do. Um, but we figured, okay, well we have, you know, one vehicle that can stay stationary in the hotel where we believe he's supposed to go because mm-hmm. that's where he was the night before. And then we put uh, myself and agent M uh, out on the road uh, on the interstate and in, in, in different locations so that we could um, kind of fall in um, whenever surveillance basically called their side off and the tack team called our side on. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea was once we, we saw him turn uh, heading eastbound, on a particular road from the interstate, uh, we would take over and just kind of follow him in to this hotel parking lot and, you know, pinch his vehicle in and, and, and kind of go from there, uh, with the other vehicle that we had, you know, pre-positioned. So I, of course that's that's not what happened. Yeah, it never is. So real quick, talk to us as much as you can about the training you guys do in a vehicle takedown. It's not simply, uh, slam into a car and jump out waving your arms, yeah, shouting police, you're under arrest. There's a lot of considerations. And without giving anything um, uh, important away, uh, can you just give us a brief overview of what that's like and how often you guys do that sort of training? Yeah, so we, generally speaking, most uh, n- now, I will say now, we've changed, obviously, um, to, to following more of a, a, a call-out method. And I think a lot of a lot of law enforcement agencies are doing that now when there is no other if there's no, you know, uh, potential hostages. If we're just talking about bad guys in a car, um, generally, we'll, we'll try to pinch the car in or, or in, whether that's actually physically making contact. And I don't mean like we're not ramming into the car and completely destroying it. We're, we're literally slowly pulling into it and then putting our bumper on their bumper and uh, preventing it from moving, um, right. whether that's one side or both, you know, front and back, it just depends on, you know, how they're parked and that kind of stuff. But, um, in this case, we were hoping that he would pull into a spot, um, that, that would only allow him to go one direction. So we would basically prevent him by putting our vehicle in front and then, you know, um, and deal with that, that, um, that type of training, you know, back then, um, we were, we were training, I'd say four, I mean, we still train three to four times a month. Usually, um, it just depends on operations, uh, cause training gets canceled sometimes because, you know, an op comes up and we have to reschedule it. So it's a constant battle of, of getting good training and, and, and kind of managing the ops tempo that we have. But right. uh, back then I'd say once a month, um, if not once every other month, we were doing some sort of, vehicle training, whether it was, you know, 
single bad guy alone or we had an undercover involved, you know, and that's, you know, you, you approach the vehicle differently when you have, you know, uh, an innocent uh, civilian or, or an undercover agent in the vehicle versus when it's just the bad, bad guy by himself. So um, in this case, our, you know, we, we anticipated he would be by himself or with co-conspirators. You know, as, as we progress through the story, folks, you know, we always say on these uh, batch cam videos on the main channel, John likes to say, uh, you know, the police do their best, but the bad guy always has the definitive vote. And in, in cases like this, doing a vehicle takedown or even an open air takedown, there's so many variables that you cannot control. Like, where does he park? Does he park in a place where there's a brick wall in front of him and two cars on either side? So you could just use one vehicle to block him in. How do you approach the vehicle then? Are there people in the car next to that vehicle? Are there other people in the, the suspect vehicle? Uh, is it is it daytime or nighttime? There's a million possible variables that you can't control for, but you train and train and do your best to be prepared for any exigency. So, at some point, this guy gets close, um, and you're being you're being given uh, updates over the radio. I assume. So, at one point, I, I assume this was turned over to Agent R, your team leader, and what happens then? So, as he passed uh, me with the surveillance team in tow. Um, I, I pull in and, and, and get, you know, kind of way in the back, um, just kind of waiting for them to, to, to call us on. And, um, he gets off onto an exit and those guys, uh, come up on the radio and say, Hey, uh, he's, he's all yours. And at the time that they said that, uh, agent M was, was behind me, uh, agent R and agent, uh, B were pre-positioned in another vehicle at the parking lot area of the the hotel. But so myself and, and M um, were kind of getting onto the exit, uh, the on-ramp of the exit when these other guys from the uh, surveillance team had pulled off. So I had no view of, of the guy uh, or the vehicle rather until I kind of got up a, a little bit of an incline. And, and by the time I did, I, I recognized that he was uh, turning left, heading westbound, and 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 not heading eastbound, which is what we had anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, so it become it, it it that changed the dynamic of of what happened drastically. And um, because I was coming up against uh, you know traffic camera or sorry traffic lights, I was behind you know several vehicles, um, and I didn't think I was going to make the light. So I called Agent R and uh, Agent B, and I said, hey, can you guys start heading uh, westbound on, uh, I believe it's Chandler Chandler Boulevard, I think it was. Mm-hmm. But uh, And so they they started heading west. They were only about a mile away uh, uh, east of where, where that, that intersection of the 10 and that on-ramp were. And so I ended up being able to make the light. As soon as I made it, um, I turned left, and I see – uh, the suspect's vehicle had had negotiated all the way to the far right from, you know, the number one lane all the way to whatever it was. Three four or five. Or yeah. And he was making a northbound turn on um, 48th, 48th Street, I think it was. And so I, I because of traffic and, and, and all that, there was no way I was going to get over there in time. And, and, and thankfully, Agent R had had made it through the the light and had just gotten ahead of me and, and managed to to get behind him a few cars behind him. And then, uh, and then I was behind him and then, uh, agent M was still catching up, 
from uh, the interstate. I think he got caught at the light. I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure. Um, so we ended up heading northbound, and that's the that's kind of the point where you know we're we're doing planning over the radio um, right. because we like you said that like this is the most uncontrollable type of operation that you can do. Um, and we can talk about kind of what we could have done better later, but anytime you're, you're, you're dealing with vehicles, um, and you're dealing with parking lots, uh, open air takedowns by bus, anything like that from the tactical perspective, it, it, it's, I, you ask any tactical guy and you'll get probably two responses. They're either their favorite because they're, they're adrenaline junkies and they love the, the fluidity and they love the unpredictableness and, and that everybody has to take initiative to recognize certain things and, and take action um, to, to make everybody safe. And then there's, you know, guys like me where I'm, I'm super OCD and I, I, I loathe the unpredictableness. Mm-hmm. I, I don't like the control, the lack of control that we have in those types of operations. I mean, I know it's a part of the the job and, and, and we do it all the time, but um, it's one of the ones that I, I just, I, I really do not like doing them. Um, and every time we do them, I'm like, okay, if we can just, if six things out of 10 go right, this'll, this'll go great, you know? Right. Um, and, and that's a 60%, you know, ratio if you look at it like that. But so he, he turns North and, and at that point, um, we were probably two or three cars behind him and, um, gets up close to the next intersection and, and, um, a lot of, a lot of areas in Phoenix and in Tucson and, um, and major intersections, there's always, you know, a plaza at each of the four corners of the intersection. In this case, um, there was one just off to, uh, the east of him from that northbound road. And he turned into that, uh, that plaza, you know, it was like a shopping, uh, a grocery store of some sort, you know, parking areas and stuff like that. But as soon as he made the turn, I was probably two cars behind two or three cars behind and, and the driver slowed down so significantly. And then myself and the passenger locked eyes. And at that moment I knew they knew we were following them. Mm -hmm. They knew that uh, somebody was following them. Just as an aside, folks, if you've never been in a surveillance um, situation, it's a funny thing. You, especially if you're on point, you're on the eye, you're the one watching the bad guy. You always feel like we call it being burned. You always feel like you're burned. You always feel like they know you're there. It's a phenomenon. I can't explain it. I don't know why it is, but there's a difference between that sort of being, oh, I'm pretty sure he knows we're here. And like, he knows we're here. That's where you were at that point. Let me ask a quick question. I forgot to ask earlier. You did mention he, he was uh, at least allegedly a kidnapper. Why exactly were you guys, do you know why the team was asked to participate in this particular one? What was the danger or the danger level or the source of danger that they felt you guys were needed? So he, uh, obviously he had been indicted. There was an arrest warrant for kidnapping. Um, the information that we, we got was, and, and this is something that, that happens quite often. And I think by and large, the public probably doesn't realize it, but you know, from time to time we get these tip line phone calls from relatives, um, you know, all over the, the world of victims. relatives. And, I'm sorry, victims, relatives or the smuggly. Yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, they'll, they'll call the tip line and they'll say, Hey, my, my cousin, my brother, you know, my relative is being held against their will. And you know, that they'll funnel it down to 
uh, you know, I'm sure whoever takes the initial call gets some initial information and they kind of funnel it down to the office that um, is most likely, you know, going to handle it. In this case, it was it was uh, our 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 office out there on the uh, on the reservation that somehow managed to figure out that these these uh, this this relative um, was being held somewhere on the reservation. And 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 I believe they they used some investigative methods. They narrowed it down to a particular house um, and they they served a federal search warrant and they rescued six um, illegal immigrants. Yeah, from. I'm sorry. From where? Uh, there, there was two. There was two of the the this this gentleman, the the main suspect. Um, two of his cohorts were there, um, kind of keeping you know these these people there. Um, so they they managed to serve this warrant um, on the res. Uh, we weren't we weren't called for that. I, I, I'm I, you know I don't I don't even know if we were even considered just based on the timeline. But they go out there, they rescue these six um, illegal immigrants. And then they arrest these two individuals. The two individuals then, as I understand it, uh, provided information, um, which led to the indictment of the main target. So this uh, inside baseball for the listeners, what um, when I say victims, I, I mean, it, by and large, the people being either being smuggled in against their will or, excuse me, trafficked against their will or smuggled by an alien smuggler, by and large, are just regular everyday people. They're people who want to come here and do whatever kind of job. They're going to live 15 people to an apartment, save all their money, and send it to their family. They're not, generally speaking, most of them are not criminals other than having violated immigration law. I'm sure that's going to get some comments, but whatever. Um, so they're, they're, they're people that are they're true victims. They're worthy of, of, uh, of being rescued and being set free. And what these smugglers will do, uh, not traffickers, the difference being traffickers take people against their will um, to, to work various you know the sex traffickers, that sort of thing. Alien smugglers are are hired by these people to move them over the border and then get them to where they're going, and they will charge them up front. It depends where they're from. If they're from China, it's a lot more than if they're from Mexico. But what will happen is they will get them to uh, sort of a – we call it a load house, a house with a way station where they're waiting to go somewhere else. And they've paid their money, and they'll call the family and be like, yeah, you know what? We want $3,000 more or whatever, or we're going to fill in the blank – kill them, uh, take them back, whatever the case may be. Frequently that happens and it's unfortunate. So back to our story, uh, this guy's now turned into a parking lot up in, I believe it was Awatuki area of Phoenix. And you guys have locked eyes. The suspect is in the passenger seat. Is that right? Our bad guy? Yeah. I mean, at the time it, it, it happened so quickly. Um, I didn't recognize um, I just, all I saw was just eyes and a, and a silhouette of a, of a person really. I, and, um, the, the suspect had long hair as well. And so I, I, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't tell that it was him uh, initially. I, I just, I knew that, that this person looked directly at me and I was like, okay, you know, we're, we're burned. And, and we put that out on the radio and, 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 you know, going back to just some additional criminal history, as to why we were there. Cause, uh, we, we kind of got off on, on just the initial charge, but, um, he had, he had criminal history for, uh, being a felon in possession of guns. Um, I believe, um, resisting arrest, evading arrest, um, being physical, uh, in terms of like assaulting, uh, uh law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Um, so all, all of these factors that he, he's a bad dude and he's going to be a problem for, uh, anybody that tries to take him into custody were there 
And so that's that's kind of what led us there. So I, I want to say we, I want to say he had made statements, had he not, about not going to jail or fighting it out with the cops, something like that, or am I mistaken? You know, I I, I don't I I don't remember. It okay. sounds familiar, but um, that's fine. I think it, it that those statements may have been made, um, you know, during the 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 uh, prior to the encounter to other witnesses. Okay, I got um, you. Maybe not necessarily stuff that we were aware of. At the time, it was things we became aware of as part of the the, the judicial process. I got but, you. Um, so once he once he pulls into this parking lot, um, you know, that we had three vehicles um, and four four uh, four guys, and so the plan kind of we started developing something pretty hastily, um, and you know we were going to let him park and then basically start you know our process of basically blocking him in with our three vehicles and then, and then kind of go from there. And when he turned left, uh, well, he, first he turns, you know, right into the parking lot and he turns left down the first row of, uh, you know, parking, um, the, the first row of the parking area. And he just is cruising and agent R kind of went past that first lane and went to the next lane because he was thinking like, okay, if he parks, I'm going to come in from the opposite direction. And then I would, you know, me, agent R would come in from the opposite direction. Then I was coming down that lane that he was in and we would kind of block him in that way. Mm -hmm. But, um, as, as he continued, uh, North through the parking lot, he basically, uh, turned left and got back out onto the street. And, um, agent R had not caught up to him in that point at that point, but agent M was still on the street uh, on 48th. And so when he turned right again, heading northbound on 48th, agent M was, um, was directly behind him. And so, we, you know, now we're, we're, we're kind of going, okay, what are we going to do now? Um, so the decision was made that, um, you know, we're going to continue on and at the next, um, stoplight, we're going to do a traffic stop. And basically we'll, we'll put, one of our vehicles will naturally just come out, get in front of him, and then we'll have one behind him and then one on, on one side or the other. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll just kind of pinch him in in that, that, that manner. And so as, as they got back out on the street and started heading north, the light turns green, we go, and then we get to the next intersection. And the light was, it was, it was what we would call stale, a stale red in law enforcement, which means it's, as you're coming to it, it's been red mm -hmm. and you know, it's about to turn green. Right. Um, and so we thought it, it had just turned red, but right as we were getting set up uh, again, it turns green and we're like, ah, oh, darn it. You know? Mm -hmm. um, so then the plan changed from, okay, we're just going to continue on and wait till we get out of uh, a lot of traffic and, um, and see where this road takes us to see if we can find a safe place to, um, affect the traffic stop on him. And so we did, we got into more of like a, a, a residential neighborhood. There was a, when we initiated everything, basically agent M got in front of him. I was directly behind him. And then agent R and agent B were in their vehicle and we were going, uh, we were starting in the beginning of a, a residential neighborhood. There was an apartment complex on the left with a, you know, your standard large, you know, six to 10 foot wall, um, that, uh, surrounds the, the apartment complex and there was no traffic. And so, um, 
the plan was basically as soon as I initiated my my lights, uh, Agent M would initiate his lights and then push, you know, put down on the brakes and force um, force the individual driving to uh, either stop or, you know, um, impact at a, at a slow, slow rate of speed because we were only going maybe 35 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, and what ended up happening was. Um, we wanted agent R to get up there on the side so that if, if we had to force him to the opposite side of the road, we had a, you know, we had that wall of the apartment complex and, um, you know, we could just push him up against that and, and, and use our vehicles to just block him from, you know, failing to yield. And, um, anytime you're, you're in a vehicle like that and you're, you're trying to do a traffic stop and there's a strong chance that there's, uh, that the, the individual is not going to stop it presents a, a significant um, risk to the community if they run. Yep. Um, and that's why most police departments um, have no pursuit policies. And um, so we were trying to avoid that aspect of it and, and not allow him to just go gallivanting through and, and, and um, drive like a crazy person. Um, unfortunately, right as we were about to do it, um, we hit some, what I, what I call Arizona road construction, which means, um, there's a lot of cones out and there's no one out working, Yeah, yeah. you know? And so we were forced into a single lane, um, for a while and we had to reset. Um, again, you know, there was no oncoming traffic really. This is a, you know, relatively uh, quiet, uh, residential neighborhood. Once the construction, uh, you know, tapered off and I, I think it was just like landscapers or something like that. They were trimming trees. Um, we, we reset. And as soon as I initiated the traffic stop, um, agent R had, had, he was just hit just enough room that the vehicle, the suspect's vehicle was able to get out, uh, from between my vehicle, agent M's vehicle and squeeze just on the side, uh, to, to the right. Um, and what ended up happening was the driver, um, impacted agent R's vehicle, like on purpose. Like you, you could tell they, they were, you know, they were kind of going in on one line and then all of a sudden they turned abruptly into his vehicle. Um, and so what, what ended up happening was they're kind of doing, um, you know, the driver is kind of veering, you know, turning the wheel to the left and then abruptly turning it right and, and trying to hit agent R and agent B um, as we're traveling down the road, we're, we're probably going 35, 40 miles, 40 miles an hour at that point. Myself and agent M were, were kind of running parallel to them because there wasn't really much we could do. Um, and so we're, we're running parallel and eventually, um, the, the suspect vehicle had just pushed agent R and agent B's vehicle, um, into the curb, uh, of the street. And they, uh, in a last ditch effort, they, they kind of turned left into the vehicle, uh, the suspect vehicle, Mm -hmm. um, that caused them to go over the curb. And I watched, uh, two of my buddies, uh, drive through a tree and then through a brick wall of, uh, the backyard of somebody's home. And then that last ditch effort that they did caused the suspect vehicle to rotate um, 180 degrees. And once it, it, it finished rotating, they were facing us and agent M was directly in front of it. And he, you know, 
pushed on the gas and just impacted head on collision on, on, on purpose, trying to disable their vehicle. Okay. So at this point, your two friends, and I, I emphasize this on the badge cam all the time. Um, most law enforcement officers don't just punch it and punch out of work with their fellow officers, agents, or deputies. Frequently, you're very good friends. Frequently, you attend each other's kids' birthday parties, and you go to happy hours and retirement parties and maybe even church together. So in this moment, you've got to sort of compartmentalize the fact that two of your good friends have just had a pretty severe accident. And now I believe, if I'm correct, you're now face-to-face, front bumper to front bumper with this bad guy. What are you seeing? What's what, what you're alone in your vehicle, right? It's just you. Yeah, I'm, I'm alone in my vehicle. Um, agent M is, is, is to, to my right and alone in his, his vehicle. We were mm-hmm. both in, in trucks. And at that moment, um, you know, Mike, as, as, as you're well aware, when, when we're getting ready to, to get out on the street, um, you know, I, I'm pretty good about wearing my seatbelt all the time. Mm-hmm. And then at that moment where I think I'm going to stop my car and I need to get out quickly, I, that's usually when I pop my seatbelt. Um, and we were past that point where we, we were unaware of when we were going to stop, uh, when they were going to stop. And, and, and so I'm pretty sure, and I, well, I know this now that, you know, but I assumed that agent, M, uh, sorry, agent, agent R and, and agent B did not have their seatbelts on. And, and, and if you talk to M, I mean, we both had the same, that moment of watching our, our, our two buddies, you know, who we love and trust and we're loyal to. And like you said, we, you know, we know their families, we spend a significant amount of time together training and doing operations and putting our, our lives in, in, in front of each other to save each other, or to, to risk our own lives for the, for their, for our brothers. Yeah. And in that moment, I'm my, my just that instant, I'm like, well, they went through the windshield and, you know, I just assume they're, they're, they're dead. Okay. So you have to push that at least to the side in your mind at this moment, because there's work to do. Uh, I'm sure that could not have been easy. Uh, so now you're face to face with this. Are you able to make out who's in the suspect vehicle? Do are you like, okay, there's a suspect and there's someone I don't know, or is it just there's heads? I could see heads. No, almost instantaneous to the impact that Agent M made with his vehicle. I was off to his left and I was kind of canted, you know, almost a diagonal. I had stopped. Um, I was probably even with his vehicle, but because I was was to the left of him, I was probably about seven feet from my hood to their hood. He was touching their car. Right. Instant, Instant to that impact. Um, Agent M was taking rounds from inside the, uh, the suspect vehicle. Like as soon as it hit, um, he started to lean out, uh, as we do, uh, open the door, lean out. And as soon as he opened the door, he took rounds through the, the a A pillar, um, of the, of his, his truck, uh, through the windshield of the, the, uh, the suspect vehicle. And that in that, that moment when that happened, um, I didn't realize that the split seconds that were going by, you know, this, it, it, it all seems like it's going in slow motion, 
but this that occurred in in half a second or mm-hmm. a second. That's very common that phenomenon. That's your brain. I I say it's your brain helping you to work through things, slowing things down. Your synapses right. are firing a lot faster, so that sensation of time slowing is very real. People on this show talk about it all the time. Yeah, and so at that moment, I I, I didn't know yet that there there was actually shots, you know, that had been um, fired. So I stopped a split second after Agent M had, had impacted, and as I stopped, um, and, and as a matter of fact, both of us, we you know, we both had body armor on. We weren't wearing our helmets because we were driving. Oftentimes we, we don't. I, I actually did have, um, I had a, a comm headset on that had ear pro. Uh, it was like a low pro headset. So um, I at least had ear protection on and that may have been why I didn't initially hear it. I'm not sure, but you know, we, we, we carry obviously rifles and then pistols, right. Mm-hmm. As a, as a backup weapon, um, both agent M and I in the, in the midst of this evasive maneuvering and, and trying to avoid, you know, causing more issues with the other, the two vehicles going back and forth, our rifles were kind of in the center console, um, with the barrel down because of all the evasive driving, my rifle and agent M's rifle basically did the exact same thing. They got flung to the other side of, uh, the passenger cabin of the the front passenger cabin. And, um, both, both he and I are not tall guys (laughs) at all. He's actually a little bit shorter than me. Um, definitely better looking though, but, um, (laughs) debatable. Uh, he, we, you know, there was, I, I glanced at it as I was stopping and, and just immediately went that, that gun is useless. I can't, I can't get to it fast enough. So right. I, I drew my pistol and as I leaned out, he was doing the same thing a split second before me. You know, I know this now cause we spoke, but, uh, or we spoke and obviously we're still working together now, but he looked at his and did the exact same thing. He, he drew his pistol. And as he drew, that's when he started taking rounds and one round, uh, went across his, uh, one of his arms. It was a graze, uh, wound. And then another one that impacted the a pillar, I believe. Um, I think, and I could be mixing the two up, but he had one across his head and one across his arm. And one of them was, was a result of shrapnel coming off of the vehicle. And the other was actual, was an actual graze wound. So I'm not, I'm not sure which one was which, but, um, he immediately hit the deck and then I stop, I start to lean out doing almost the exact same motion. And as soon as I lean out, two rounds go right past my shoulder. All right, gang, we are back. It is 2023 and we are back better than ever with the Gutowski file. Steven Gutowski is the founder of TheReload.com. That's TheReload.com and the host of the Weekly Reload podcast. Steven, how are you, sir? Oh, I'm a little bit under the weather, actually. Yes, yeah. you may you may hear it in his voice, folks. He has the dreaded pox, uh, the COVID. Yeah. yeah, I finally got it after almost three years, I guess. Um, but luckily, it's uh, it's a pretty mild case, vaccinated and all that stuff. And now the new the latest variants aren't so aren't as virulent, yeah. I guess. So I don't feel too terrible, but yeah, stuck at home for a while. No, we're not. We're not sponsored by Alka Seltzer Plus. We will take their money. Steven swears by it. That's isn't that right? You said it worked really yeah. well. Yeah, I really like that stuff. You know, I always used to think it was like an old person medicine, 
Uh, maybe I'm just getting old now. But, uh, <laughs> uh, it seems to work really fast compared to pills or whatever. All right, Alka Seltzer. Really easy to go if, down. If you're listening, we'll take your we'll take your sponsorship dollars. Uh, Neil at ActiveSelfProtection.com. We'll, uh, we'll take a we'll, box. We'll return. Yes, we'll have to try. Send send some free samples and then we'll talk. <laughs> Anywho, this week we are talking about a, a new AP poll. Uh, the title of the article over at the Reload by Mr. Stephen Gutowski is "Americans View Guns as Low Priority Headed into 2023." And we we spoke just before we started here about this, and uh, a, a lot of it I think has to do with the way these are worded. So, um, why don't you tell us what the poll says and what do you think it means, Stephen? So specifically, the Associated Press and uh, NORC at the the University of Chicago asked people, "What problems would you like the government to work on in the coming year?" Mm. And the issue that was now actually tied for fifth place is just gun issues. Now, I think that I believe this was an open ended poll, so people could just answer whatever they wanted, and then the researchers would take that and compile them into certain categories. Mm -hmm. So, uh, one problem with that, of course, is you don't know which way people are. What they mean exactly by gun issues. Do you right. want Congress to pass gun rights legislation or gun control legislation? Now, it seems to me this is <clears throat> probably leaning more towards the gun control. Like, do you want new gun control laws? That's how I would interpret it, at least. But just to be clear, that's the language is, isn't crystal on this one. And so that's important to, to note as we talk about this. But what you do see in this poll is that phenomenon we've talked about a couple of times, that cycle that happens in American politics when it comes to gun control support, which is that it tends to go up in the immediate aftermath of a mass shooting, a very high-profile mass shooting, which we, of course, saw uh, one of the worst in history last year, the Uvalde Elementary School uh, shooting, which happened in May. And in June, the AP did this same poll, and they found that uh, gun issues was was actually the second most uh, important one as far as what people thought the government should tackle right in June, and so now it has dropped down to the fifth most important, uh, which I think says a lot about where we are going into the new year on you know gun policy at the national level at the very least. Yeah, I mean, again, this this we talked about this before, but this is such a, a sort of fickle. Um, opinion. P people, as you said, people will go back and forth depending on when was the most recent uh, mass shooting. How how heinous was it? Um, do you do you feel like this? You're you're on you're around Capitol. You're around a lot of important, uh, well connected people. Do you think that politicians, senators, representatives follow this stuff closely? Are they paying attention to these polls? And does this does this in your this is your opinion? I guess does this affect how they? proceed what um what sort of topics they want to discuss or what sort of policy goals and priorities they have i think that's a really good question i mean yes would be the simple answer uh, maybe they're not watching this exact poll right and and they're like oh well it's it's uh you know 11 points down from what it was in june right so i'm going to adjust my whether i vote 11 percentage points you know one way or the other right it's not exactly like that it's more like Politicians want to have a good feel of how their constituents want them to vote, mm -hmm. right? That's the key to getting reelected. And so the 
the national mood on something is does come into play, I think, quite a lot when it comes to how policies actually get enacted. Not everything, you know, smaller level stuff uh, that gets crammed into an omnibus. You know, you can get away with some things there that uh, and hope that your constituents just aren't paying very close attention to the lower level things. But when it comes to major issues like passing a significant new gun bill, you know, they're, they're going to want to be on the same side of it as their constituents. Now, obviously, a national poll presents a conundrum in that it's there isn't, you know, the senators aren't elected by the entire country. Uh, governors aren't elected by the entire country. House members aren't elected by the entire country. So, um, you know, they, they provide you with some limited insight into uh the constituents of these politicians. But I, I think they do give you also, uh, especially this poll, which is asking people what they want to see the government do. You know, not just do you generically support this position. Right. This is like, do you want to see the government work on what, like, what do you want them to do this year? Yeah. And if gun issues are way down the list, that gives, you know, sort of uh, probably helps frame what the conversation is going to be in media where the focus is going to be for a lot of these politicians. So I do think it has an impact. I don't think it's a one-to-one thing like, Oh, every AP poll that comes out, they're scrambling to read the the top lines from and, and trying to, you know, determine whether or not a vote gets moved based on that. Um, but I do think like they, they want to be in tune with what the national sentiment is at any given, you know, both parties want that basically. Absolutely. Folks, we're going to keep this one kind of short. You know, it was a long episode leading up to this. And if you've made it this far, I appreciate it. Do me a favor. Go over to TheReload.com, TheReload.com, and carefully consider getting a membership. As I say every week, Stephen relies on your membership dollars to fund his important work. He's breaking news that no one else is breaking. He's paying attention to things and connected to people in such a way that you get these stories uh, and you get them at TheReload.com before you get them anywhere else. Stephen, thank you so much. Uh, Happy New Year. I'll talk to you next week. Absolutely.